Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, you'll be listening to PSY 342, Psychology of the Exceptional Child. I hope you listen and enjoy. All right, guys, this is Class 7, and it's Session 4. We're still talking about children with visual impairments. All right, so some of the characteristics, we, we mentioned incidental learning last time, but obviously this is something that children just don't pick up a lot from their environment by watching others, and normally, obviously, we do do that. And this is the way that most of our sighted children learn. Um, we don't usually take the time and point everything out to them. They just watch us, and they pick up a tremendous amount about their environment in that way, and then these children will be lacking. All right, so it does impact a lot of things that we're not just absorbing um, things around us through sight. Sight is actually, you know, one of the major ways that most folks do learn. And so it's going to affect our cognitive skills for sure. Um, But note, it can also affect our motor skills. We may not strive to walk if we don't see anybody walking and we are going to have to walk out into what for us is darkness and that may make us nervous and so we may not push some motor skills in that way all right it's going to possibly affect our language skills um again seeing uh, has a lot to do with language because we're, we're talking about objects and we may hear people talk about those objects but we may not understand what those things mean um and then social skills as i mentioned with my former student you can kind of see how that would play out um, with this and um, to just kind of go back to the language I'm gonna give you an example of a kid we worked with he was in a room and, and he kept he couldn't see very well I think he was really very much almost to darkness and he, it was a very sunny day and we had lots of windows in the room and the lights were on and he kept coming up to everybody saying I, you know I really it's dark in here it's just dark in here I really need you to turn on the lights I don't like the dark and, you know, we were kind of surprised by that because it was a very sunny day and the lights were on. And so we kept saying, honey, it's not dark in here. You know, it, it's really very bright. And he would go, no, 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 it's dark and I don't like it. Um, and we finally, one of the teachers put a sweater on him. And he said, thank you for turning on the light. Well, he had obviously been cold at some point when somebody had said it's dark in here. And he had associated that feeling of being cold with the word dark and had gotten again kind of confused with the language so you can kind of see how that would cause some issues that's just one example there um limitations are going to vary greatly obviously it has a lot to do with how much sight you actually do have so there's going to be a wide range of limitations and again kids have such different experiences that you know some are going to be more affected than others but there's definitely going to be some problems from that um one of the bigger limitations is going to be if we can't see we don't know how to get places um we generally don't even necessarily need people to tell us if we've been riding in the car with our parents many many times we could actually get up and walk some of those places that they took us um and so you'll see that kind of limitation they just if assuming we were paying attention of course um so an interacting with the environment, again, requires a good bit of sight in order to do that. So there's some limitations there. Um, academically, we may see some problems, and um, I'm going to get these up, and then we'll talk about them. Um, so academically, obviously, if we can't read, 
um, there are going to be some problems. And most of our, our children who are visually impaired are about a year or so behind when it comes to things like reading. Um, we, once we get them caught up with Braille, if they need that, usually they catch up pretty quickly after that um, and go. Socially, some of these kids are great. Um, some of them are going to have some difficulty. There are a lot of folks who aren't comfortable being around a person who is blind or whose eyes don't look like others do and they just a lot of times will have to um, again have to rely on public transit to get to places and so they may get more isolated than we would like for them to be or than they would like to be. Um, orientation and mobility if we are pretty good with that we can get where we need to go but we still have issues sometimes. There are a lot of places that don't have good public transit systems and we're limited in getting around and, and we may have to pay for cabs if they have those in our area and that could get expensive. Um, one of the biggest issues is that folks are very, very uncomfortable with those who are blind. Um, with any disability, there's a little bit of this, but for some reason, I don't know if it's because it's tied to darkness and we're kind of scared of the dark, um, people do not always feel comfortable with those who are blind and they tend to think, well, they won't see me if I just walk out of the room. They won't ever know I'm here. So that can actually be a problem. Um, some of the folks engage in what we call stereotypic behavior, sort of blindisms is a, a kind of a name that some folks use, but stereotypic behavior is the more appropriate term. And this is because they're not getting in enough stimulation to the brain through the vision field. Um, they're going to try to stimulate the brain in other ways, and they may rock or sway or take their head and nod it back and forth. And um, those kinds of things are um, sort of off-putting to other folks. And so what we usually do is try to teach them, if you're by yourself, that's cool, but try not to do that in public because folks don't want to talk to you, and that would be bad. All right, educationally, um, we may have to go with Braille, as I mentioned, and there are different codes of Braille. Literary Braille is what you use just to read. Um, it's kind of a, there's actually different grades of that that, that you would have and um, to, to shorten you up so that each word isn't necessarily spelled out. The Nemeth code is what we use when we're doing math. Um, some of the different symbols that we might see in math. And the unified English Braille is usually when we're doing more scientific kind of stuff or some of the, the um, terms that, you know, like the hashtag and the little at sign that, that you would use when you're um, on the internet. Um, those had to be developed in something so that we could code it for Braille. Um, so there's different kind of codes with that. There are different tools for brailing. The old-fashioned one is the Perkins Brailler. These things are still around. They're a little bit clunky looking today, but there's three keys on either side, so a total of six. You put your little fingers up there, and Braille is made up of a cell of six dots, and so you have three on one side and three on the other, and that's what your fingers need to learn to do. Um, the slate and stylus is when you're actually just punching holes um, to make the braille. But there are electronic braillers now, which are certainly much faster, um, a little bit easier, and they'll print out um, kind of a braille thing. Um, one of my students had a computer that would print out in both English and in braille. Um, he would type it up, um, and then he would bring me the English copy, but he could proof it. In the braille copy and I have a couple he gave me um, just to have but because I just asked for him but he um, was allowed to, to do a lot of things in that respect which 
got him through college and grad school. Um, so you got to have somebody who can teach you how to use Braille, and there are fewer and fewer people who are able to do this today. Um, and our teachers who work with these individuals need to be fairly proficient in Braille. And this is usually just the schools for the blind that would do this. The public schools usually use large print. Now here's kind of an example um, of Braille. You can see that we have, if you just go to the left, you've got A, and there's six cells there, but only the top left one is going to be raised. Um, and then if you go to B, you'll note it's the two on the left, where C is the two across. There are some um, issues. I don't know if I have the whole alphabet coming up. Yeah, here we go. All right, so look. If you look at E, and then you go look at I, do you see how they are backwards? All right, and then I think it's, let's see, I have to think on these because I don't do this as much as I do English. Um, there's a couple others that are reversals. All right, hang on a minute. P, look at P and look at V. They reverse in a different way, just kind of flipped around. All right, so if you've got a child who has dyslexia, all right, um, they're going to reverse just like they, you know, a child with dyslexia does with B and D in, in the English. Um, they're going to reverse different letters here. So E and I are going to get reversed. That P and V, let's see, U and M, if you look at those, you can see those would be potential um, ones that might possibly get reversed. And so you see that kind of thing here as well. And then you can see down below, you've got some of the numbers listed. And there's a little dot to the left on the bottom in front of every one of those numbers, um, which is to let you know that it actually is a number. And so like one, if you look at that, looks like P, but it has that one little dot in front of it and then there's some of the punctuation that, that goes with this and so you're learning to feel this with your fingers most kids read right-handed and use their left-handed as a placement finger to kind of um, go down rows so they'll, they'll come touch their fingers they read across and then they drop that left finger down and they come find their finger again in order to read um, all right, so other things we want to look at when we do education is, you know, how much residual sight is there, and we want to be able to use it as much as possible. So if we see them sort of cheating with Braille, when we can tell they're trying to read it, um, we're going to push them to large print books because um, if we can go this way, um, they're going to assimilate into the culture a little bit better because obviously out there we don't see Braille everywhere we go. Um, it is a few places like, you know, if you go to a public restroom, they'll have it on the door or in the elevator, but they oftentimes put it too big um, for them to read. So large print books can be great and you can order those, read almost anything you want to. All right. There's a lot of things that allow you to magnify um, what you are looking at and blow it up into larger and larger and larger print. Um, certainly some of your computers can do that. You can get to a certain size on the font and if the screen's big, you can get even bigger. Um, we teach listening skills because we are going to rely more on our auditory system than our visual system. That isn't necessarily easy for all of these children. Some of these kids still would be visual learners, and so they have to really work on their listening skills. They, you would think this would become supersonic, but it really doesn't work that way. Um, certainly the technology today is the best time that we've ever had to live in if you have visual impairments, uh, but there's still certainly some limitations. 
Um, again, we're going to focus on orientation and mobility training for these kids. There's that long cane. You've seen it. It's white. It has a little red tip. And when we see that, we know that a person does have visual impairments. And they are using that to just kind of feel ahead of them to make sure that they're not going to walk into um, a table or fall down the step. You know, they'll, they'll feel that there's something not right coming up. They do make them that fold up. Uh, my student, I told you about in the cafeteria, would actually, we would, he and I would go walk the campus. He would find where his classroom was, pick out his seat, and then the day of class, he'd bound in there without his cane, and he looked like he could see a lot better than he did, and he wanted people to think he could. Guide dogs are great, but we won't give them to you if you are in this school age range, um, mainly just because it's so hard to take care of them, so an adult can get a dog. Um, I have one student I taught here who wasn't able to get a dog until she went to grad school. She's got a great dog. Um, and they are just really, really useful. They, they are able to um, help the person navigate um, wherever they need to go. Um, tactile maps are maps that you would actually have that are raised and you would be able to feel um, where you are and where you would need to go. Um, human gods, we still do occasionally see this, but um, America has gotten away from um, having so much of this. And, you know, some of the other countries are still, like Russia, still really relies more on a human god than, say, a dog or a cane. But we're pushing independence, so we don't see that quite as much. Um, technological aids like your GPS, there's some radar things that let you know there's something over your head that you might bump into a tree limb, things like that. Um, communication, information access, particularly through computers. Um, there's a lot of stuff that will talk to you. Um, Y'all you, have seen the GPS. They'll tell you, you know, turn left. Um, you can get, though, other things that will communicate as well. Uh, one of my friends had a talking calculator. Um, that was really useful for her. Okay, so least restrictive environment. Um, there are options here. The residential school is an option in, in every state. Um, for some of the children who really do need to learn Braille and, um, you know, learn how to orient in a fairly safe environment. Um, others will go to a special class at a public school and they may be more self-contained um, simply because of the materials that they need, but certainly they could be included. Um, a resource room, remember, is just one or two periods a day that they would go to special ed class where the teacher would work with them on what would be doing be done in the classroom. And then oftentimes we'll see um, our student go into the general class and the itinerant teacher is just one who comes in and out and kind of helps, maybe um, provides the, the book that they would need in large print or the brailing that they might need. And a lot of the kids really like this option, particularly if that's the only issue that they have. Um, lets them kind of hang out with kids who are like them other than sight. All right, so early intervention, we really aren't trying to teach reading with the little bitty kids. It's just, you know, they're not supposed to be reading yet anyway. So we focus on the orientation and mobility, trying to get the little kids comfortable moving around in their environment, even though they may not see very much. Um, we try to get them to have some social interactions with uh, children who are typical in terms of sight um, so that they don't feel isolated. Um, that helps develop their social skills. Um, we work with the parents a lot um, on how to work with their children. There's a lot of techniques that um, can be used to help this child um, develop skill sets and become independent. 
Um, and one of the biggest things early intervention does is just provide support for the parents who may feel overwhelmed. Um, there's a lot of support groups um, and there's a lot of out there for the parents and so we provide that for them especially um, if they you know ask for it. All right, when we transition a right, couple things we really do make sure that we, we want to do, um, especially when there's no cognitive impairment, we want this person to be able to live independently. They want to live independently just like any other adult does. All right, so this is going to involve a lot of things. What services are available in your community? All right, is this a place where you can have all your meals delivered? Well, then maybe you don't need to learn to cook. All right, but if not, we may need to teach you how to go to the grocery store and buy stuff that you can't see. All right, um, have somebody do it for you, have it delivered again if that's option, how to cook. All right, and those kinds of things actually can be done by someone who's visually impaired. All right, employment's a big issue. Most of these folks, again, aren't cognitively impaired and can do almost anything that doesn't involve their sight. All right, so sometimes on a job, there need to be some special accommodations made that let them possibly um, work from home on a computer would be an accommodation that we might want to do. Um, but we find a lot of our folks who are visually impaired are actually overqualified for the job that they get. They, they get all their education and their training. Nobody wants to hire them um, for the job they're qualified for, so they end up getting something that, you know, may not be really be that fulfilling for them. A lot of times we see the visually impaired just packaging silverware, uh, like the plastic fork and spoon and the the knife that would go in a little package, and they could certainly most time do more. 